African football coach named Vince Lombardi, who is recognized as one of the greatest football coaches in all of American football. He's recognized even as one of the greatest sports leaders in all of American sports history. And in the 1960 NFL football season, his team, the Green Bay Packers, had lost in the NFL championship. Really, it's kind of the semifinal. Uh, the NFC championship had lost to another team, the Philadelphia Eagles, in a, a heartbreaking loss that they were supposed to win. They were favored to win the championship, and they ended up losing the game to the Philadelphia Eagles. Well, fast forward to July of 1961, when the Green Bay Packers, under Coach Vince Lombardi, gathered together uh, in order to start summer training season for the upcoming 1961-62 season. And Vince Lombardi called his team together in the first day of, of training camp. The team gathered together. They were expecting to move on to the advanced football concepts that were going to take them on to a, a championship. And Coach Lombardi looked at them all around the room and he said, gentlemen, there's nothing more important than we can do, that we can do to get ready for the next football season than to go back to the very basics. And his team looked at him and he grabbed off the shelf a football and said, gentlemen, this is a football. He took them right back to the very basics, right back to the very beginnings of what the game of football was all about. That's partly what we're doing tonight. We're going to go right back to the basics and talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because one thing that, that we want to do as Christians, one thing I know you want to do as, as members of this church and other churches throughout the region and around the world, is be clear about what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. So that's what we're going to talk about. What is the gospel I think if you talk to any Christians really around the world and say the word gospel to them, their eyes are going to light up because they're, they're going to think right off the bat, I know what the gospel is. I, I organize my life around the gospel. I talk about the gospel. I go to church and I hear the gospel. But the sad truth is, I think if you were to dig down into the understanding of many of those Christians who think they understand what the gospel is, what you would find is that many of them actually do not. And as I talk to Christians around the world, and as I talk to Christians across my own country, the United States of America, my sense is that far too many Christians would answer the question, what is the gospel, with something that is actually far short of what the Bible holds out as the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. So maybe some people would answer the question, what is the gospel, with something like, well, the gospel, the good news, is that God will forgive your sins if you just believe in him. Believe that God exists, believe that God is good, and he'll forgive your sins. Other people would say something more like, well, the good news is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and he wants you to be happy and healthy and maybe even wealthy if you have enough faith. Other people would say, look, the gospel is that you're a child of God, and God wants his children to be abundantly successful in every way. Other people would know that it's important to say something about Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, but then again, if you pushed them on how all of that fits together, it all starts to fall apart for them. I wonder how many in your church, I wonder how many people who call themselves Christians in the United Arab Emirates or whatever country you're from would actually have a good biblical answer to the question, what is the gospel? That's what we want to do today is make sure that we do. I, I basically want to hold it up in front of you like Vince Lombardi did and say, ladies and gentlemen, this is the gospel so that we're clear about it. So how do we find out? what the gospel is. Well, obviously we know that we ought to go to the Bible, right? I mean, in terms of the word itself, gospel, it's a middle English word that's made up of 
two old English words, good and spell, right? So good meaning good, and then spell kind of being the, the word for spelling. And if you spell things, you're making up words. And so good spell is, is an old English word for good word or good news. But how do we find out what that good news is? If there's some good news about Jesus Christ or or through Jesus Christ, how do we find out what it is? The the Bible, obviously, do we we do a word study of the word gospel in the Bible? Every time we we find the word euangelion as it is in the Greek, we could go in and try to define that, look at the context, figure out what the message of the euangelion is. We could do that, and we'd get some good insight from that. I mean, do we look at the whole storyline of the Bible? Like, you know, try to find out what the the great epic story of the Bible is and try to understand what the good news is from that? Again, we we could. And that would give us a lot of context. It would give us a lot of texture to the gospel message. And in fact, as we go through these two talks tonight, I'm going to be taking you to to places back in that storyline. And we're going to see how some of those move forward toward the good news of Jesus. But what I want to encourage us to do tonight is not so much do a word study, not so much even look at the whole storyline of the Bible, but I want us to look at the preaching of the earliest Christians and see what they presented to the world as their good news. We see that in the book of Acts, we see it in the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, really all the letters that Paul and Peter and John and the rest wrote to their churches. There are sermons in the book of Acts where we can identify what the earliest Christians were preaching to their people. And as I look at that preaching and at those letters, that proclamation of the gospel in the New Testament, I see that message coalescing around four crucial questions that the apostles, in in one way or another, always answer. And they always give the same answer to those four questions. So let me give you the the questions, and then I'm going to give you a a shorthand, a quick sort of shorthand for remembering those four questions and their answers. So the first question that they always answer in in one way or another, sometimes it's, you know, depending on their audience, they may just sort of assume this, but they answer it in every every single time they present the gospel. First, who made us and to whom are we accountable? That's the first question. Who made us and to whom... As human beings, are we finally accountable for our lives? Second question, what is our problem? So in other words, are we in trouble? And if we are in some sort of trouble, what sort of trouble is it? Why are we in trouble? Third, if we are in trouble, well, what is God's solution to that trouble? What is, what is God's solution to the problem that humanity faces? And how has he acted to save us from it? And then fourth, if there's, if there's trouble, if there's a problem, and if God has acted in order to solve that problem, then how do I, like, like me, myself, right now, not somebody else, but me, how do I come to be included in that salvation from that problem? What makes this good news of Jesus good news for me and not just for somebody else? So those are the four questions. Who made us and to whom are we accountable? What is our problem and what kind of trouble are we in? Third, what is God's solution to that problem? And fourth, how do I make that solution mine? And if you give a good biblical answer to all four of those questions, you've got the good news that the apostles of the early church were proclaiming, and therefore you've got the good news that we need to believe and proclaim to the world around us as well. So let me give you a shorthand for a way to remember these. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a quick sort of answer to all of, these, all of these questions. You can kind of remember it if you're 
sharing the gospel with somebody around you, if you're trying to remember the gospel just for your own life, here's a way to remember it. These four words, God, man, Christ, and response. So raise your hand if you're already familiar with that kind of shorthand. I just want to see where we are. Okay, you know that shorthand. So here's what I want you to do. When I count to three, I want you to say those four words, and I want to see how well you know these. Ready? One, two, three, go. Excellent. All right, when I count to three, say them backwards. You ready? One, two, three, go. Yeah, y'all actually did it louder the second time, the backwards time. You teaching it to them backwards? Okay, good. That's good. I think if you take those four questions and look for them in the New Testament, you're going to find them everywhere. You're going to find them in Paul's preaching in the book of Acts. You're going to find them in Peter's presentation of the gospel in his letters and John's presentation of the gospel in his letters. And what I want to do for the rest of our time tonight is take a kind of large view theological look at each one of those questions and unpack them. So we're going to go through in four points, God, man, Christ, and response, and talk about the gospel truth that's present in all four of those points. So number one, God, what is it that we need to know about God in order to have a right understanding of the good news of Jesus? Well, I think it's a couple of things. The first thing we need to understand is that God is our creator, and we are therefore accountable to him. That's the first thing you need to know. God is your creator. He's the one who made you, and you are therefore accountable to him. That is the beginning of the Christian message. It's the beginning of the Christian Bible. God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, which means that everything starts from that point. And if you miss that point, if you get that wrong, if you think that somehow God is not the creator of the universe, then like a badly aimed arrow, you're going to miss the target every time. If you want to understand the gospel, it starts with the recognition that God is your creator. He's the creator of the universe. One of the songs that we just sung said that he's the one who names the stars. He's the one that that threw the planets into space. He's the one that made the galaxies and scattered them throughout the universe. He made it all. And he also made you. You as an individual person. Whatever your name is, God made you in the womb of your mother. He made us as human beings. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27 says, let us make man in our image, God said, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, whatever you may think about the story of creation, whether you're a six-day creationist or, you know, long earth creationist, whatever you may think about, about all of those details, the implications of that claim that God created the world and especially that God created you, those implications are enormous. Because what it tells us is that the world is not ultimate. It's not all that there is. You know, the world, the universe sprang from the mind, from the word, from the hand of somebody else. And that's a revolutionary idea. Because it says that the world is not the end. The world is not the ultimate goal. The things that you can get from the world are not the ultimate goal. And we, therefore, if created by God, we, therefore, as human beings, are not just the result of random chance, genetic mutations, gene reassortments, chromosomal accidents. We're not just a cosmic mistake. We as humans exist for a purpose. We are created. 
Which means that if you're here, if you exist, you're the result of someone else's plan. And not even just your parents. You're the result of the idea and the plan and the action and the purpose of God himself. And that brings both meaning and responsibility to human life. None of us is autonomous. None of us rules ourselves. And understanding that fact is key to the gospel. What I mean by that is that if if God created you, then God therefore owns you, and God therefore has the right to say how you should live. You realize that, right? That if, if, if God created you, then he owns you because he made you. And if he owns you and made you, then he has the right to tell you how to live. In other words, you are accountable to him. I think that, too, is a revolutionary thought in our day. I mean, you could go out on the street. Maybe you could walk around this room and ask people. You try this sometime. It blows people's minds. Just, just cold cock them with the question, hey, to whom are you accountable? Who are you accountable to? And they'll, you know, if they don't just walk away from you because you're a weirdo, they'll, they'll give you all kinds of different answers. You know, a student, for example, might say, well, I'm, you know, I'm accountable to, I suppose, my teachers in a certain way, right? You know, somebody in the, in the state of Kentucky, in the United States of America would say, well, I'm accountable to the, to the laws of the state of Kentucky. I'm accountable to the laws of the United States of America. A young child might say, I'm accountable to, to my parents, Right? But if you start to press in at the end of the day, I think most of the time, people generally think that even the things they'll admit they're accountable to, they are only accountable to by choice. I mean, if you don't want to be accountable to your teachers anymore, you just transfer schools or you drop out of schools, you get somebody else to be accountable to. You know, if you're a young person and you don't want to be accountable to your parents, generally you just, you could, you could just leave home, go get a job, right? Told my kids that many times growing up. You don't want to live under my rules, go get a job. Breaks the rebellion pretty quick, actually. You don't want to be accountable to the laws of the United Arab Emirates? You move to another country and be accountable to their laws. You don't want to be accountable to anybody's laws? Get a billion dollars and buy your own island. You make your own laws. Generally, we think anybody that we're accountable to, we're accountable to them just by choice. Because ultimately, when you dig down deep enough, most of us tend to think that right down at the very bottom where it really counts, we are only accountable to ourselves. That's how we live our lives. It's how we want to live our lives. Because we think we're only accountable to ourselves. But the the Bible says, no, that's not right. Ultimately, when you dig all the way down, you're not just accountable to yourself. You are accountable to the God who made you. And that is a God who has the right to tell you how to live, and that is a God to whom you will give an account at the last day. The bad news is, the Bible tells us that the account we'll give is the account of rebels. We are rebels against God's plan and purpose for us. That brings us to the second point. First point was God. Second point is man. That second point is complex because it's got both beautiful and ugly things in it, right? You look at the first chapter of Genesis, you're going to see things about man, about humanity that are both beautiful and ugly, that are both wonderful and yet destructive, that verse we read from Genesis chapter 1 just a few minutes ago, listen, listen to, what it, to what it says. Let us make man in our image, God said, in our, in our likeness, 
and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, etc., etc., etc. Do you know what that phrase, being made in or as God's image, means? There's been a lot of ink spilled throughout the centuries about what it means for humanity, you and me, Adam and Eve in the beginning, and everyone after them, to be made in God's image. Some people have said, well, it's a reflection of God's character, right? So it has to do with who God is and therefore who we are. So God exists in relationship within himself, in the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal relationship with one another, and therefore we as human beings are relational creatures as well. That's that's what some scholars say. Others will say, no, it has, it has to do more with the fact that God is a creating God, and therefore we as human beings are creative as well. God works, and therefore we work. God brings things out of chaos, and we bring things out of chaos. People have said that's, that's what the image refers to. And I think there's something else about it, though. All those things may be true. It may be included in this idea of an image. But do you know what people would have thought when they saw the word image when Moses first wrote the book of Genesis? They would have thought about something more like the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar made and had everyone bow down to and worship. That's what they would have thought of. Because if you were a king in in the ancient Near East, an image was a pretty common thing for you to use to to, to tell people that you are the ruler of an area. So if if you sent your armies in to conquer a certain land and you took out all the villages in the capital city, one of the first things that you would command your soldiers to do once you took over that land was you'd look around as the king and you'd say, oh, okay, there's the highest point within eyeshot of this, this area. So I want you to take a detachment of soldiers and I want you to go up there and I want you to put an image of my likeness on the top of that mountain, and they build a statue of you as the king, so that when the villagers and the farmers were out working the fields or whatever, and they looked up to wipe the sweat off their brows, they would see your image or likeness up on top of the mountain, and they would remember, oh, this is Nebuchadnezzar or whoever who owns this land. We serve him. So when God says in Genesis 1, I'm going to make humans male and female, to be my images in the world, at least part of what he meant was that he's putting human beings, Adam and Eve, in the world to do a certain job. And that is to communicate to the world through the way that Adam and Eve exercise dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, all all the rest of that. They are to reflect to the cosmos, to the world around them, the way God himself was the ruler of all of that which meant that they were supposed to rule as God ruled. If God ruled with love and compassion and justice and mercy, then Adam and Eve were to rule the cosmos with love and compassion and justice and mercy, just as God would. In other words, they're supposed to reflect God's rule down to the world around them. That was their job. That's what they were supposed to do. More than that, as sort of king and queen, little king and queen of the cosmos, Adam and Eve were supposed to protect the Garden of Eden from evil coming into it, which, as most of you will know, becomes really important later on in the story. They were supposed to protect it. So that was their job, and that's what God intended when he said, I'm going to make Adam and Eve, I'm going to make them male and female in my image and in my likeness. They were supposed to be little statues that spoke to the world of God's rule. If you know the rest of the story in Genesis, you know that God put a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden where he had placed Adam and Eve. And he said to them, look, I've I've given you every other tree in the garden, like thousands of them, thousands of trees, every one of them producing fruit. You don't have to do anything. They're just making food for you. And you can eat from every tree in the garden except for that one that I put in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
don't eat from that tree or else you're going to die. Now, why did God stick that tree in the middle of the garden? I mean, why not just leave it out, right? Wouldn't that have solved a a whole lot of problems if he just left that part out? Just don't put that tree there. Don't put any sort of temptation in front of Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit of that tree. Just leave that thing alone. Why did he put it there? Well, that tree in the middle of the garden was meant to be a reminder to Adam and Eve, as the first human beings, that their authority as the little king and queen in the cosmos underneath God, it was meant to be a reminder to them that their authority was not ultimate. They weren't the high king and queen. They were just a steward. And there was a crown and a throne that was higher than them who could tell them how to live and what to do. You remember what happened next? And the serpent, the dragon, Satan of old, puts together a plan. And his plan is not just to come to Adam and get Adam to commit a little traffic violation against God's law. That's not, that's not the point. I think that's how we think about it sometimes. You know, Satan comes and gives, gives Adam the sort of easiest sin in the world to commit. You know, Adam, look at that. Look, you know, Adam and Eve, look at that, look at that fruit. You know, eat that fruit. That's an easy thing to do. And, you know, they take the fruit and they bite into it. And oops, we forgot. Traffic violation. I parked where I wasn't supposed to park. And, you know, there it is. I, I think that's how we think about it. But that's not what Satan was doing. Satan's whole idea was to overturn everything God had put together in the cosmos. You know how God had put it together, right? He himself is the high king. Adam and Eve ruling over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, all the rest. And then the cosmos under them, Right? It was this beautiful structure of authority that God had with the whole cosmos being ruled by Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, even with their own kind of authority in the, in, the, in the marriage that they had together, and then God, the high king, over the whole thing. Satan wanted to overturn, like, like falling dominoes, that entire structure that God had put together from the bottom to the top. And so, so he comes to Eve, who's under Adam's authority. You ever wonder why Satan comes to Eve and not Adam? I mean, shouldn't he have wanted to get Adam, Right? I mean, Adam's the one that he wants to take down. Adam's the one that gets blamed for the whole thing throughout the whole rest of the Bible. Why doesn't he just go straight to Adam? A lot of dumb answers have been given to that through through history. You know, some people have said, well, Satan knew he was a strategic little creature, and so he knew that Eve was more gullible than Adam. He'd be able to more easily convince her to take the fruit, and then he could win. The Bible never says anything like that. Or other people have said, well, he knew that, that Eve could seduce Adam into eating the fruit. The Bible doesn't say anything about that either. What it does say is that in the way God set up the cosmos, Adam had a certain amount of authority over his wife, a certain husbandly authority over her. It was part of the authority structure that God had created in the world. And Satan wasn't interested just in getting Adam to sin. He wanted something bigger. He wanted the woman to induce the man to sin against the king. See the dominoes falling upward, every structure of authority being overturned. So he goes to the woman and he says, look at the fruit, eat it. You're not going to die, you're going to come to life. You're going to be like God if you eat the fruit. So she does, and then she entices Adam to eat the fruit. Adam takes the fruit and rebels against God. You ever wonder why Satan came in the form of a snake, an animal, I mean, throughout Scripture, Satan seems to be able to sort of, you know, appear as different things. Sometimes he appears as an angel of light to people. Other times, you know, there's, there's the dragon, and other times there's the, there's the serpent. 
I think some of it is just the nature of who Satan is. He seems to be a dragon of some kind, you know, a snake. But there's a reason he comes in the form of an animal and not another human, for instance. Why would that be? Well, again, because Satan is not just interested in getting the human beings to rebel against God. He's interested in overturning every authority structure that God has set up in the cosmos. So he's interested in having an animal induce the woman to induce the man to rebel against God. Falling dominoes. Why a serpent? I mean, if you're going to come as an animal and try to entice these human beings to rebel against God, why don't you come as something more impressive than a snake? I mean, show up as like a blue whale or something, or a rhinoceros or an elephant. That would be more impressive, wouldn't it? I'd I'd be more willing to listen to a blue whale talking than a snake. Don't know about you. Well, again, it's, it's because Satan wants from the very bottom to the very top every structure that God had put into authority to fall. He wants it all to be overturned. So, so he, he, he appears as, at least symbolically, we're not talking about germs, but symbolically the lowest of all the animals to entice the woman, to entice the man to rebel against God. And when they do, the result is cataclysmic. The whole world falls into sin because Adam is essentially declaring independence from and war against God when he takes that fruit. It's not just a little traffic violation. It's not just a little miss. It's rebellion. It's a declaration of war against the creator. It's Adam saying, look, I, I know that you've made me the little king of the cosmos, but I don't want to be the little king. I don't want to have your authority over me with the right to tell me how to live. I want to be the big king. I want to be the high king, and I don't want you over me. You know where the word sin comes from? It's interesting. It comes, it comes from the world of sports. Actually, it's, it's, again, an old English word that comes from the realm of archery, and it means to miss or to fall short. That's what the word sin means. So it's a common word in, in old English. So, you know, the English king would call an archery tournament or whatever, and all the Robin Hoods of the land would gather together, and they're going to have an archery tournament, right? And you've seen it on TV. They line all the archers up, and they've got the hay bales out there with the targets on them, and all the archers are aiming at the target, and they let the arrows fly, and one of them goes and flies past the target out into the field behind, and everybody in the, in the dais would say, oh, he sinned, and he missed, right? The arrow fell short of the target. It went past it. He sinned. He, he missed. Well, sometimes you'll hear that archery understanding of sin being used, for example, to teach what sin is in Sunday school. People will say, well, it comes from archery, and it means to, to miss, to to fall short, the arrow doesn't hit the target. The problem, of course, with that imagery is that the archers were actually aiming for the target. And so that understanding of sin can leave us thinking, well, yeah, sin's just a mistake. Sin's just a miss. I'm trying as hard as I can to live up to God's standard. I'm doing everything that I can to do what God says. And man, I just fell short. And who is God to say that the penalty for falling short ought to be death? I mean, imagine an archery tournament where the penalty for not hitting the bullseye is that your head gets cut off. Nobody wants to be a part of that. But that's how we think about it in, you know, in Sunday school. It's like, oh, well, it looks, it's not a big deal. It just means miss. It just means fall short. But the problem is that when Adam took that fruit, he didn't just fall short. He wasn't trying as hard as he could to hit God's target of righteousness, and he just missed it a little bit. No, what Adam was doing was not aiming at the target at all. He took the arrow and pointed it at the king. Because he didn't want the king's authority over him. 
He fired the arrow. And the result was a sentence of death. And the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. Why, why, did, why did God say that? Why is it that the penalty for sin is you shall surely die? In the day that you eat of the fruit of this particular tree, which is symbolic of my authority over you, you're going to die. Why death? I mean, why wasn't the penalty for sin something more, you know, why, why couldn't it be, you know, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely turn into a toad or something? Why not that? Well, the reason is that because when Adam declared war on God, when he declared independence from God, when he said, I don't want you over me, he was declaring independence from the source of his very life. God held him in existence. God gave him life and sustained him in life. And Adam said, I don't want that. And when you cut yourself off from the source of your life, you die. The penalty for sin being death is not, it's not arbitrary, it's not weird, it's not a strange thing. It makes perfect sense. If you declare war against the source of your life, you die. A lot of people in the world, a lot of people maybe even in this room, in this room who are living as if you have declared independence from the source of your very life. And it is no wonder that the result of that will be, if it has not already been for you, death. Adam declared war on God. The Bible goes on, though, and says that the real bad news is not just that Adam sinned, but that all of us are guilty of sin. We're guilty of sin as a human race because of what Adam did for us. He, He stood as a kind of representative for us in declaring war against God. He acted on behalf of us, and so he took his entire kingdom, that's all of us, down with him. It's not an unusual concept for a king to represent his people. That's what Adam was for us as a human race. But the Bible says that that even more, not a single one of us would have done any better than Adam. Because every single one of us in our desires and in our values and in the things we pursue and in our actions and thoughts and words, we all every day ratify what Adam did. We, each of us, declare war against the king ourselves. We declare independence from the source of our own life, and so we have spiritual death in our lives. That's the problem. They go around and ask people what they think the problem with humanity is. They'll give you a lot of answers. They'll, tell, they'll say it's, it's social problems. It's inequality. It's inequity. It's political problems. It's geopolitical problems. They'll tell you all kinds of things. And all those may be problems. I don't have any judgment on that right now. But underneath all of that and more fundamental to all of that is that humanity has declared war on God. And is it any wonder then that the result of that is chaos and death and destruction and evil and sadness and brokenness? We're rebels against God. That's who we are. Rebels who had a job. Rebels who were intended to rule the cosmos under God. And yet rebels... Who declared war on God. So if that's the problem, then, then what was God's solution to that? What was God's solution to that problem? Well, he didn't wait long to tell us what the solution was. I mean, it's only a couple of chapters after God creates humans that you get God's solution to this whole problem. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In the midst of all this cursing and in the midst of all of this destruction, God says to the snake... He says, I will put enmity, that's hostility, 
between you and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. That offspring shall bruise your head. In other words, he's going to kill you, and you shall bruise his heel. You'll hurt him, but you're not going to kill him by hurting his heel. He's going to kill you by crushing your head. You're not going to kill him. So what's that saying? I'll, I'll put enmity between the offspring of you, the offspring of the woman, and at the end of time, there's going to come somebody else who's going to bruise your head, serpent. You're going to bruise his heel. What, what does that mean? Well, in, 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 in the first place, it means that Adam should have done that to the serpent in the first place. You ever thought about that? What should Adam have done when the snake slithered up and said, hey, eat of this tree? Well, I mean, Adam's there. The Bible's very clear that Adam is there with Eve. He listens on for a little while, but what should he have done? Well, he should have, he should have grabbed the snake and crushed its head and thrown it out of the garden. That's what he should have done. It was his job as the king, as the protector of the garden. That's what he should have done, but he didn't do it. He listened to the snake and joined the snake's rebellion against God. So in that promise in Genesis 3.15, God's saying, listen, I am in the fullness of time going to send another king, another representative of humanity who's going to do to the serpent what Adam should have done to the serpent. Crush his head. So century after century passes, and there's this great question throughout the whole story of the Bible. When is that great king coming? Genesis chapter 6, Noah's father seems to think that Noah is that great king. Everybody thinks that David is that king. Everybody thinks kind of even more that Solomon is that king. This is a thousand years or more later. This is a long time later. People are still wondering, when is the king coming? When is the king coming? And finally, you get, you get this whole string of kings who are not that great king who's going to repair what Adam did. And finally, you get to the New Testament. And in its very first book, Matthew practically screams at you, this is that king. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the one who's been born of Mary. And sometimes Matthew will say that straight out. Right? He'll, just, he'll just say it. That this, is, this is the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the king, who's come to set everything right that Adam caused to go wrong. Sometimes he'll just say it. Other times he kind of codes it. You know, I don't know if you ever read uh, you know, books like the Da Vinci Code or you know, something like that, like puzzle books. But in some ways, the book of Matthew works like that. There are little puzzles in it that tell you in a kind of coded way that Jesus is the king. You ever read Matthew chapter 1, all those, all those generations of Jesus and how Matthew divides them into 14 generations each? 14, 14, 14. 14 generations, then 14 generations, then 14 generations, and then the Christ. What's all those, what are all those 14s there doing? What's, ha- what's happening there? Well, what's happening there is that famously, if you took the Hebrew words for David, DVD, and you add up their numbers, like, you know, for example, in English, A would be a 1, B would be a 2, C would be a 3, D would be a 4, right? Well, if you take the word, the, the letters for David and add up their values, the number you get famously in those days was 14. So with all those 14s in Matthew, Matthew's basically screaming at us, David, 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 king, 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 this is the guy, pay attention. This Jesus is the one who's going to set everything right. Now Jesus knew that he had come to set everything right, and he knew that what it was going to require for him to set everything right was for that sentence of death that had been pronounced in the garden, in the day that you eat of this tree, in the day that you rebel against me, you shall surely die. He knew that that sentence of death was going to have to fall on him. Matthew 26, as he shared a last supper with his disciples, he took a cup of wine with its 
red color. And he said, drink, drink of this, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of, of sins. John chapter 10, he says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. His followers knew what his death was about too. Paul said it like this in Galatians chapter 3, 13. Paul, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In another place, 2 Corinthians 5, he says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter in 1 Peter 3 said, Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. You see what those Christians are saying, those early Christians? Do you see what they're describing? What they're saying is that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't dying because the curse of the Garden of Eden fell on him for his own sins. What they're saying is that that curse fell on him for his people's sins. Because if he's going to be their king, if he's going to be their champion, he's also going to have to be their substitute. The great curse that, that, that hung over all of his people, that hung over all of, all of them, and threatened them from all eternity would have to fall on him so that they wouldn't have to die. That's why he cries out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because the God of the universe whose, whose eyes are too pure to even look on evil would not look on his son because all the sins of Jesus' people were placed on his shoulders as if he did them. And the God of the universe turned away, he turned away and said, I will not look at that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's so that you and I, if we're Christians, if we're believers in Christ, would never have to be forsaken. The curse of Eden fell on him, not on his people. So that's true. Then how does this become good news for, for us, for, for you, for, for me? I mean, how, you know, have you ever seen a kid that's walking down the street and sees his candy store, right? He presses his face up against the door of the candy store. He sees all the goods inside, all the candy, and jawbreakers and marshmallows and all the rest, but he can't get to it because there's a pane of glass in front of him, and it's, it's good stuff, but it's not his stuff. How, how do we make sure that the gospel isn't just that? That there's this crucified king who stands in the place of his people, who takes the punishment that they deserve for their rebellion against God, and then who rises again and offers mercy. How do we make sure that we're not just kids outside the candy store? Well, the Bible tells us how. The Bible says that the response to that great crucified and resurrected king is faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Well, what what do those words mean? Well, faith faith is one of those words that's been basically misused for so long that most people have no idea what it really means. When you ask somebody to describe what faith is out on the street, you might get some respectful-sounding words, but the heart of the matter for most people out on the street is likely going to be that faith is just believing in something ridiculous against all the evidence, right? You have zero evidence for believing what you believe, but you do it anyway, and that's faith, and man, good for you. That's probably what you're going to get, but you read the Bible, you're going to find that faith is, faith is nothing like that. It's not believing in something you can't prove 
And so many people define it. No, in, in the Bible, faith is a, it's a rock-solid word. What it, what it means, if, if you want to use just a one-word definition, is reliance. That's what it means. It just means reliance. It means to trust in something, to rely on something. And it means to rely on something that has proven itself to be reliable. You know, so you, you size something up and you decide if it can bear your weight, right? I mean, you probably, at some subconscious level, when you sat down in those chairs right there, you sized them up, right? You looked at it and said, do I actually kind of think that this, you know, this took like a half second in your mind, but you sized it up. Maybe you put your hand down on it a little bit to make sure one of the legs wasn't broken, you know, and you sat down on the thing. But if you had walked in and like, you know, the legs had been made out of, you know, a, a string of, you know, glued together toothpicks or something, you'd have sized that up pretty quick too. And you just said, I'm not sitting on that. Because if I try it, it's not going to work. It's going to fall on me. Well, faith in Jesus is the same thing. Faith in Jesus is to size Jesus up, to look at him, ask the question, do I really think this man is who he says he is? And do I think that he can do what he says he can do? And come to the answer, yes, I do. I do think that Jesus is who he says he is. I think he's the son of God. I think he's the redeemer of the world. I think he's the king of Israel and the king of kings. I think he's all that. And I think he can do what he says he can do. I think he can save me from my sins. And so I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to rely on him because he is reliable. Well, what's repentance then? Well, repentance is just the flip side of the coin. That's, That's all it is. It's the flip side of the coin of, of faith. So if, if there are places in the book of, of Acts, for instance, that describe faith as turning to God. So if you, if you have faith, you're turning to God and now relying on him. That's what it means to have faith. There are other places in the book of Acts where, where repentance is defined, really throughout the New Testament, as turning away from sin. So, you know, you're, you're walking towards sin and you turn away from it and you begin to walk towards God. Well, do you see how faith and repentance, if you think of them as turning, are really just one action? It's not two different things. It's one action. I mean, looked at from the perspective of, of God, it's, it's, it's turning faith. Repentance is turning to God and relying on him. Looked at from the perspective of repentance, it's turning away from sin. Which is why Christians say you cannot have faith in Jesus without repenting of sin. I mean, try like... Let me try to turn to Jesus in faith without turning away from sin. You can't do it. You'd have to do both at the same time. Turn toward God, turn away from sin all at the same time. Now, when I say repent from sin, turn away from sin, it doesn't mean you never sin again, right? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that until we stand before Jesus, we are going to sin again and again. What repentance does mean, though, is that you, you look at this sin out here, whatever, whatever that is to you, whatever, whatever idols, whatever pursuits, whatever sinful pleasures, what, whatever it is over here, what repentance means is that you declare war on those guys and you never again sign a peace treaty with them for the rest of your life. Now, now they may get you, right? You, you declare war. I declare war on you because I have a new king. I'm repenting, turning away from you, turning toward him and pursuing him. Well, when you declare war on them, guess what they're going to do? They're going to declare war right back on you, and they're going to come after you hard. Being a Christian doesn't mean that those old enemies leave you alone. It means they come after you harder, and, and they're going to get you sometimes. They're going to take you down. They're going to drop you to your knees. And when they drop you to your knees, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, do you know the choice a Christian has when he gets down on his knees? A Christian's got two choices when those guys get him and knock him down to his knees. You can either stay on your knees 
and say, you know what? You got me. For the 500th time, you got me. And what I should do now is just renounce my faith in Jesus Christ, and I'll just serve you because you got me. That's one choice you can make. The other choice you can make is to stand up again. Stand up for the 500th time and brush your legs off and say, you know what? You got me for the 500th time. But that's my king. I will never be friends with you again. We are at war until the day I stand before Jesus. That's what repentance means. Repentance doesn't mean that you never sin again, but it does mean that you never love sin again. You never sign a peace treaty with your sin. You're never friends with it again. That's what it means. And you're able to fight that battle because you know that your eternity has been secured by Jesus. His death and resurrection in your place. Look, when when you stand before God at the judgment, just flipping back around to the very beginning of this talk, when you stand before God to give an account for the life that you have lived before God, what what do you plan to do or say in order to convince God to say, you know what? You're righteous. And what are you, you going to pull out and lay on the table in front of God? You're going to pull out, you know, your church attendance. Like, look, God, I, I went to church for 50 years. You know, look at that. Look at that, God. That's good. Now, why don't you, on the basis of that, declare me to be righteous? You're going to pull out the fact that, you know, you never murdered anybody. You know, God, look at that. I was pretty good compared to some people. You're going to pull out your spotless thought life. Put that on the table. What are you going to pull out and lay on the table and say, God, on account of that, declare me to be righteous. Well, I'll tell you what every Christian is going to say. They're not going to pull anything out of their pocket. They're going to, they're going to empty their pockets and say, God, I got, I got nothing. What every Christian is going to do is simply and quietly and humbly point at Jesus. And they're going to say, God, do not look for any righteousness in me at all. I am a rebel against you, and I deserve to die the second death forever. But, but, look, at, but look, look at him. Look at your son. Count me righteous because of what he did. Count me righteous because of his life and his death in my place. Every other thing that I might pull out in front of you, every other thing that I might trust and rely on in front of you, I'm, I'm renouncing all of that. I know none of that will work, but I know what will work because you promised that it will work is him. On account of him and him alone, Declare me to be righteous.